I mean, we're watching a revolution happen in front of our eyes and all caps, you know, and, and, and it's, it's thrilling and it's, it's crucial and it's, it's fantastic to watch. And we have to make sure that its roots are deep. Do you like books? I'm outlining a new writing project. Who wrote this book? Read it. Read it. Sometimes I'd write something. What are you writing? Have you written anything lately? I'm Amanda Stern, and this is Bookable. On today's show, Race in Friendship. Nell Freudenberger was on Bookable earlier this year to talk about her New York Times bestselling novel, Lost and Wanted. I was so excited when she agreed to this bonus episode and even more thrilled with the author she chose. Emily Bernard is the author of Black is the Body, stories from my grandmother's time, my mother's time, and mine, which I'm actually reading right now, and some of my best friends' writings on interracial friendships, which I just ordered from my local bookstore, my local independent bookstore. Emily and Nell are new friends, but that didn't stop them from covering some serious ground, and they don't shy away from the question of race in their interracial friendship. From their rituals around writing to how silence doesn't save you, this conversation exceeded all of our expectations, not just of their conversation, but of any conversation. So, my people, let's dig in. So... Do you want to start by talking about writing during this time, during the pandemic? Well, I mean, I think I'm writing during this pandemic like I'm doing everything, just slowly and catch as can. You know, it's um, it, I, it's never been more clear to me how important are rituals, you know? Um, yeah. And it really is. At the same time, I'm having a difficult time every day you know, recommitting to those rituals that I know are crucial to my mental health and to my ability to, to write. But it's, um, it's a daily commitment to get up and to, to decide to, to try to do the work. How about you? Yeah. Can you, I, can I ask you what, if you have any rituals around writing that, that are, you know, particular to you? Well, you know, I always, I always imagined myself as somebody who needed absolute silence and just a kind of predictable setting to work in you know I don't really mm-hmm. like working in coffee shops because anything right. is, well you know my, my experience you know anything can happen yeah um yeah I mean from the most mundane to the most uh but I've learned to work within some chaos and to create some order in the chaos of just living in a house like you know I have my kids at home all the time and they are unpredictable um but still, working early morning has never felt more crucial, you know, just to be able to yeah. have it in my head when I, when I, before the house wakes up. And, and fortunately, that's because right. I have teenagers, you know, that's, I have a lot of time in the morning before they're stirring. But that is, that's just, that's the foundation. And if I don't manage to make it happen in the morning, it's the rest of the day is just, is really compromised. How about, how about you? Okay, that makes me feel better because I'm also a morning mm-hmm. worker and I had this, um, I had this kind of luck during the time that the kids were still in school um, in that I, I, I thought to myself, you know, okay, this is happening and I am never going to, I'm not going to get anything done between March and May. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not, I was actually working on a novel and I thought, I don't want to lose those months. And maybe what I'm going to do is wake up every morning at 445 because the one thing I think that's easier about teenagers than little kids 
is maybe the only thing is that little kids wake up so goddamn early. Um, and so I told my husband I was going to wake up at 445 and he was like, okay, whatever you want. Um, because, you know, I have kids who are young enough who need you to sit next to them for, um, for remote schooling. And actually it worked so incredibly well because I felt like I sort of, I mean, it's, it's weird to say, but I felt like I sort of accessed this 20 something version of myself living in New York city and getting up early before work to, to write. And I, all of a sudden I felt like I had that energy again. The rest of the day was a nightmare, you know, and by Mm -hmm. five or six o'clock I was yelling at the kids and and horrible. Um, But I actually was getting so much done in those two hours before I had to, you know, start the breakfast and the school and all that. And since the kids have gotten out of school, when I should have more time, theoretically, I'm, I'm slowing down and I don't, it's like, I don't feel the same kind of magic when the light outside is full sun that I did when it was dark and I was the only one awake in the house. Yeah. I I completely understand that. And I think, um, I think you're absolutely right. I remember when the kids were small and I would try to get up, um, to have that time that you, I mean, I was amazed. You were a real model for me getting up and doing that every day and making that, carving out that time. But I remember Isabella coming, would come and join me in the kitchen and I was going to sit here, mommy. And then she would kind of lean over and then she's like on my keyboard. And I told my, I kept telling myself, you're going to miss this one day. But I I know, I know. I'm always telling myself that. But I'm a model for nobody right now. I mean, I'm getting nothing done and the kids are in camp. I don't know what's wrong with me, you know? But you know, I told you, you um, have to give yourself a minute to breathe, you know, yeah, before I yeah. think the next day, because you have done a lot of work. So I think, you know, I think the other thing is what you happen to be writing. And it's a it's sort of a crapshoot because I do, I mm-hmm. remember when Trump was elected, as we all do, and feeling that this, you know, not only can I not write, but I can never write again. There's no point to anything I'm doing. Um, right. And I've had other times like that, you know, around September 11th. But in this case, the, because I was working on something that was, um, it was about a disaster. It was set in the future. I think that's like 99% of fiction writers right now are working on that novel. But because it wasn't this disaster, I had all the disaster feelings, but um, I had sort of a different container to put them in. And um, it was just happenstance that that was the thing that I was trying to do when this started. I understand that. So that is, it's, the energy from this time or the kind even as you know awful as it is it, it's helping it's contributing to the work you're able to harness it to make to do the work that's right and I mean I wanted to ask you about that because you've written just this beautiful essay in the New Yorker about um the effects of the George Floyd killing inside the four walls of your house um and what it's like you know moving from teaching college students to kind of uh, being a mother and not being able to go out and having these girls who are in between, uh, you know, children and adults and having to talk about this incredibly upsetting, um, these incredibly upsetting events. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm that New Yorker essay, uh, took a lot out of me and, I was actually just walking. Well, we don't even have to talk about it if you don't want to. But if anyone, oh, no. anyone who's listening to this uh, wants to read an incredible essay, that's, I just wanted to kind of direct them where to go. No, I appreciate it. I mean, I wrote it because I wanted it to be read, you know. 
I, I was walking my dog earlier and um, some neighbors stopped and you know they were, the way they were, they were talking, I knew they'd read it. And then one of them did say, you know, thank you for writing that essay. And I thought, you know, one of those catch 22 moments, I thought, well, this is exactly why I wrote this essay, you know, not so this particular neighbor would read it, but so that people would right. read it and be affected by it. But it really did cost a lot. And I think I, I'm having that funny response that maybe we often have as writers just thinking, I'm so glad that I got across what I was trying to get across, get, trying to get across, but, but I, it, it, and I'm, I'm kind of watching it, you know, curious because it really, I know how vulnerable it made me to, it made, I know how vulnerable it made me to, to write it by watching the reactions of other people and how actually vulnerable the essay makes them feel makes, reminds me <laughs> it costs a lot. Um, and I wouldn't, you know, trade that for anything. And that's, you know, you, you pull from the well. And it was necessary, you know, writing it, I really felt and still feel it was about just trying to make sense of life. And the only way I know how to, how to do, how, the only way to, how to make sense out of life is to try to write about it and understand it that way and just keep moving. You know, the essay doesn't have, I think, any real conclusions, but um, that's, not, that's not why I write. But it was tough. And it feels right. as hard as it is and as much as I want to hide in this, these multiple crises that are happening, you know, for me, my instinctive animal response is just to despair, you know, writing is about fighting against that and fighting against um, a really innervating pull into silence, you know, that I think I've just been fighting my whole life. And it's about staying present. It's like, there's no, you know, there's no safe place to be in this thing. You know, either you're going to be engaged and, and, and make yourself vulnerable or you're going to be silent. And that doesn't really, you know, that doesn't help any, anyone. And I've learned that, you know, um, through hard experience, that silence doesn't save you. Trying to remain safe doesn't, doesn't save you. It doesn't save me. Right. But, yeah, I mean, I, you know, as much as I, I felt a real need um, to, to write that essay, it was written, it was driven by a need. I also just longing to just, just, um, to just step out of, out of, uh, the kind of public conversation in a, in a way, you know, it's just, yeah. just, there's so much happening that I don't understand. And I just really want to watch and listen. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, there's another place where the privilege of being a white writer is to, to say, okay, I'm just going to use this time to educate myself and learn and listen. And um, if I write about race, somebody may say, um, wow, you know, the congratulations for taking that on. Or if I don't write about it, nobody is going to say anything, right? You know, I mean, that is, is, people say it over and over again, but that um, privilege of not having to do it. To, but, it, and if we're going to sort of save ourselves by writing during this time, if we're going to fight off despair or, um, you know, even just hold on to a sense of who we are outside of being mothers right which is something that writing in the morning gives me you know I feel like I'm myself and so whatever I'm doing for the rest of the day even if it's just cooking cleaning continuously I still feel like like myself um and we all want to do that as writers but the but the burden of um you know being expected to write about it I imagine is really hard yeah I mean but it's it's a you know this is, I think, defines the position of the Black writer since 
black people have been writing anything, you know, um, how are you going to show up to, for the struggle? You know, there's always a struggle. Right. And I'm, you know, take a lot of comfort knowing that generations of black writers before me have been wrestling with this question. You know, for some people it's very, it's pretty clear, you know, for others, it, it is, it is not clear. Um, and there's a lot of privilege I have just simply being able to, you know, having a platform, as you say, and, and being able to, to make these kinds of choices for some black writers, there are, you know, there are even fewer choices. So to be able to, you know, I, I'm mindful of that too. And I think though that my thinking about the way that I write about race and, you know, what it has to say in this present time. And I've talked about this a little bit. I thought about my book and right. I was in over the course of a year and, you know, how long it's been you know, doing, doing interviews. I, and I've been asked sometimes, you know, would you write the book the same way now? And that's always a strange question. You know, the answer is always yes or no. Um, right. I mean, the book, you know, reflects your. Uh, but that's your, true of every book, right? I mean, you it's know, true of every book, book yeah. be the same book, you know. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, I was thinking I was rereading some of the essays from Black is the Body, which is one of those books that you can, um, you know, read with joy again and again. And I'm not saying this because we're on a podcast or because we're friends. <laughs> I just, um, I love these essays so much. And I'm thinking about the moment where you are going to church with your grandmother in Mississippi. And he, am I right that it's Hazelhurst? Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and she is suspicious about your desire to go to a Southern Black church because she thinks that you're um, doing a sort of anthropological study, um, which you, in a way you are because you're going back to Yale to um, to come, you know, it's something that you think that you're going to use in your academic work in some way. And, um, but you're having, when you're in the church, you're having these, these feelings that, you know, are like a revelation. And that, you know, that's fascinating to me too, just all the different layers of um, ways of, of writing about it and the way that your grandmother thinks you should be going to church or not going to church. I love this moment where she says she's suspicious of you because kids your age shouldn't want to go to church. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot in that moment. And I remember the, you know, straddling all of these different interests and concerns. Um, but, you know, the, the lesson from that moment that I think about every day has to do with art and labor, you know, and the fact that art is happening everywhere all the time. Um, and there are people who are just dedicated, you know, to do, doing the work that they need to do in this life. And I believe in that above all, you know, I believe in it above any other kinds of politics. I believe in being dedicated to the craft of getting it down right. Um, yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about that, you know, and what it, what it, what it means to hold this belief, you know, in this moment, um, that there is something transformative about simply telling the truth and doing it in a way that's um, the most effective and the most uh careful you know uh to taking care with the articulation of 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 truth and and reality is something i take very seriously and i also care a lot about nuance you know and something that i I think about in this moment um you know of course i wonder where, where what about nuance and what about subtlety which are so dear to me you know uh contradictions and Ambivalence. And that your really essays are every that that's everywhere in your essays. You know, the um I said this 
of course I was lying, you know, and then we move to the next paragraph. It's just, um, there, you, you're never landing on a, an, an answer in a, um, you know, a definitive, almost never in a definitive way. And that's something that I love about your work. Well, I love that about your work too, my friend. And that's how I think we became friends first. Our books were friends first. <laughs> yeah. Know? Okay. And then we became, we caught up, but I love that too. And at your book to me, um, you know, it takes up, you know, if I didn't know you, I remember, you know, if I didn't know you and I read that book, I would, the first thing I would think was that well, this white writer actually knows some black people, which is something I don't always feel, you know, when I'm reading, you know, books, even by people, books that I love, you know, it's, it, it might be, become clear to me, okay, well, this person has a very limited worldview when it comes to race. Um, but I might value something else about the book, but that's something, it's a very subtle thing and it's really meaningful in your book, like just to, to kind of, um, and it's not simply because you have black characters, you know, um, in the world that you've created, but simply the way that your characters are interacting with each other, um, that subtlety, you know, the kind of almost mundane way um, that the friendships are, the friendship evolves, even though, you know, one of the characters is, and that's not a spoiler to say, well, she begins the book, she's not alive, but it, there's a subtlety. And I, I don't know if that's something you can teach, but I, it's, it's clear to me, you know, um, I was actually saying that one of the, my daughter's friends came over who's white and we're doing the study group, um, you know, the summer on systemic racism, these 14 year olds. It's but, amazing. Um, it's amazing that your daughter, uh, when told that she should learn something by you, that she should spend some of this time learning something, chose to embark on a study of systemic racism. I mean, that's a, yeah, it, that's a credit to, to her mom. Well, you know, it's also and dad, both of you, but well, you know, I'll take any credit right now. <laughs> I can, so I'll take it. But I must say, it's so much just about them, you know, and the things that interest them. And 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 Isabella, you know, it was it was it's really about survival. She said to me, you know, it's 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 one thing to study about study ignorance, and it's but it's worse to be ignorant, you know. Um, and she wants to be. Wow. She's getting ready for the fight, going back into school. Frankly, you know, she that's right. what she's getting preparing for. She wants to be. Okay. informed and I'm arming her in you know, a summer um, in that old fashioned way with, with knowledge, but we're reading and studying a lot. And so their friend who comes in as part of this um, with them, you know, was talking about, um, actually wasn't even really talking about, it. I asked her because I've noticed that her friendship group, she is very, I mean, it's Vermont and she manages to have an absolutely, you know, diverse friendship group, this white girl who's their, their friends with. And I was telling her, you know, I think that it's going to serve you in your life in ways you don't even realize. I mean, you know, you think it's just being friends with who you want to be friends with, but the fact that yeah. you, you know, you're, you're the kind of person who, you know, is going to be open always to the possibility of having relationships across, you know, these, whatever divides, because you've already been doing that, you know, it really is about a practice. And that's something in your book too. It's just, these characters have grown up together. They know each other. It's not that, I mean, race is very much alive in their relationship. And, you know, there's I mean, as it is, I, I think that we've talked about this, but as it is in every, it's hard to imagine relationships um, between people of different races where race is not a topic. But on the other hand, you kind of taught me something about that because I was, I was talking about a, a relationship of people I knew, you know, a, a white woman who said she, never talked about that um with her black husband and you sort of pointed out to me that there are all you know there's there's all sorts of reasons that i might not understand about why 
that, you know, about the hurdles. And I, and I guess I think maybe because, um, the black women I'm friends with are writers, um, for the most part that of course we talk about it, you know, it would be, we're talking about our books and it would be strange if that never came up. Mm -hmm. But, but I, but I also think what you're talking about with your daughter's friend you know, the, the kind of work we, we both read, you, you were lucky enough to have the galley and read Isabel Wilkerson's new book cast. Mm. Um, and I've only read the excerpt in the magazine section, but she talks about um, the, the, uh, the relationship of caste to race in American society and the way that caste is this, um, these, this, lifetime of neurological inputs about um what what jobs and positions in society people who look a certain way are supposed to have and that these these uh inputs sort of make these grooves in our experience that are really hard to step outside and and that it's kind of a miracle that people are allowed are able to forge connections across them and i think you're right to um to tell a white teenager in Vermont who has a diverse social group that she's doing something that's going to, you know, be, be a blessing for her for the rest of her life. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I still, I believe in um, that kind of work, you know, the kind of that, that, that very subtle kind of work. I mean, we're watching, you know, a revolution happen in front of our eyes and all caps, you know, and, and, and it's it's thrilling and it's it's crucial and it's it's fantastic to watch and we have to make sure that its roots are deep you know and that um and that has to happen i believe in our everyday interactions and that's something that you know isabel wilkerson's book which i i mean in this book is is fantastic um and it's to read it even the article has so much you know. right there's I mean, and, and that's the thing that she does. I mean, I read the book, right? I, I was very fortunate to be able to, to read it in Galley and I, uh, um, have a review coming out. And I read it, and the first few pages, I had to lie down because it was so wonderfully and terribly confusing in that it was a dy- dystopian tale that actually is about our actual lives in the wake of, you know, the 45 presidency and she she manages to tell this t- and it's beautifully rendered. I mean, the prose is impeccable. So it's having this incredible aesthetic response to the you know beauty of the prose and the tale and the and the st- and the skill and the work. But the story was dreadful and it was true. And so I had to lie down. Can you tell just, us what the story is about? How she begins the book for me and that. What she does is she, you know, so, right, I mean, that that first, that, you know, the first few pages, just stay with it. You know, she, she, she'll knock you out with the genius of it. She talks about um, a plague. She talks, she talks about these um, reindeer who were, whose, um, whose bodies are now emerging as a result of global warming. Right. And I forget the reason why. Right. Exactly. But they, and they have. Are, they're saturated with these toxins that are, you know, now being exposed and causing uh, this, you know, tragic um, these deaths, you know, right. uh, among hum- the human population. 
So the story is about what we, the damage we've done to the earth and to each other as a result of global warming, our irresponsibility as citizens of the, as global citizens. And she connects it to Trump and she literally brings us seamlessly, skillfully into an encounter in a parking lot between two white strangers in Brooklyn over, I think it was a grocery store parking lot about Trump. And it's in real time. I mean, in the moment of COVID. So not only is she brilliant, she was able to do this, you know, it, it now. That's amazing. You know, she, yeah, right. It's, <laughs> right. It's, she does I was, that, wrote that, I guess. That's incredible. I, I was physically stunned, you know, by all the things that are happening in those first few pages. And she continues. Um, the, her, her hand is steady by, throughout telling the story, which is a beautiful story she tells. And she does this thing. She also weaves in, you know, some personal moments um, from her personal biography. And she then pulls back and gives you this bird's eye view, you know, what's happening in the world and making connections between the Jim Crow South, you know, uh, the Third Reich, and kind of and India as well. Right, it's generational perspective on India. It's it is masterful what she does, um, and the linking from the personal to the political, and from the very local to the to you know this global view. I mean, she does it so beautifully. Um, yeah, I think it's incredible. It's so well informed. Um, it's so. I mean, trenchant is a word I think maybe, but it, but it is. And yet somehow there's, um, you know, she has, a, she literally has a vision, you know, she has a vision for us um, and how to work our way out of it. So the bad news is, you know, that the <laughs> caste system, you know, is that defines our culture is deeper than, of course, American racism, and that's what she is showing us, right? There's actually no escape right. from this, <laughs> you know. But right. she, she, what you do, what you read and learn in the book is that you can undo this. It takes time. I mean, you know, it's almost sort of mirrored in the um, the, the care and nuance of her prose, right? It takes living in a nuanced way and thinking in a careful way um, that leads to to right action. And so she has their figures that she looks at and in the, in the book that are meant to, that are instructive about how it's possible to work against this. But of course it is a daily practice, just like the practice of art, of making art. Right. Right. And she has these incredible personal anecdotes, uh, like the one where she's interviewing the boutique owner in Chicago, who just repeatedly for an amount of time, that seems incredible refuses to believe that she is who she is because, you know, as she says, I came in a package that, you know, wasn't what he was expecting to see. Exactly. Do you remember what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, that oh I remember very or, well. Yes. Yeah. And what's also interesting yeah. is that And she, how she moved, like you're saying, from that to, yeah, to um, much bigger, more abstract question. And she refused, and she, that moment she refuses to give us what we want, which is, you know, um, the name of the store, um, you know, we want. Right. To, she refuses to give us that. She's her point is that's not the point. You know, it's you can, not the point. Can, it's like because she doesn't want to give us someone to blame, right? I'm right. also I can't I can't help imagining though that guy being like, thanks, 
I know. Yeah. I mean, you're uh, reading this and you're imagining, I mean, you're already just in love with her when you're reading this book. Yeah. If you haven't fallen in love before with her previous work, but um, you want vengeance, you know, you want this guy out and she says, no, that's not the point. You have, you have to keep going. Actually, you your work is, is harder, yourself. right? Your work is White person much more difficult. Times magazine. <laughs> you, you will, it's too easy for you to imagine that getting rid of this person gets rid of the problem. And that is something we all, I mean, as human beings, you know, we want, we want to excise the damage. Um, but that's not how it works. I mean, we all, we're all implicated in this, in this problem. We all are. And that's what she is showing us. But there's a, this kind of incredible, um, I say there's just the wisdom, the word wisdom is really for me operative. When I was reading the book, I felt like I was, I, I was reading something frankly prophetic. That's how I, how strongly I feel about this book. Time for a short break. When we come back, Nell and Emily talk about the privilege of being able to sit back to learn while white. Stick around. Welcome back to this bookable bonus conversation with Emily Bernard and Nell Freudenberger. I'm fascinated by that reindeer metaphor that you were talking about because I, over and over again, I think we're seeing that the ways that the way that we can think about um, environmental justice and the way that we're trying to think about racial justice are are tied together. Um, and I'm thinking about the the other metaphor that she uses about the house, you know, about the she has this problem in the ceiling of her house and there's water, um, there's clearly water damage, and it's a question of whether you're going to paint over it and seal it and hope for the best or whether you're going to do the harder work of taking it all apart, seeing what's under there and, uh, and fixing it properly. So I guess when you talk about, obviously I don't know what the, what the solution that she's proposing is, is, but I think it must have to do with that, that daily work that, you know, add sort of adding um, when you're going about your day, uh, an awareness of, of, this and the way that you're, I mean, I think about it a lot in teaching my, my white kids, um, you know, and trying to figure, and I don't feel like I'm the best person to do it. And, you know, thank God that they have black teachers at school who are also involved in this. Um, but, you know, I guess I feel I, I'm really uncomfortable when you say, uh, you're, you know, you did a good job with this in this friendship in a novel and, um, I can tell that you have black friends because I feel like I'm really close. I feel like I'm in a way I'm hiding how close I am to, um, you know, overtly racist, uh, family members and, um, and my grandmother in particular, but, um, also how complicated it it is to talk about, you can hear it in my voice to talk about it and write about it with my parents still alive and with the love that I had for this particular grandmother still very much in my heart. And, and the, the thing that the piece of writing that's made me think, I think the most clearly about it is your essay. I'm actually not sure which is it, it is it white friend where you go out to drinks with your colleague and talk about the grandmother in the back of the throat. Mm-hmm. No, that's, um, yeah, that's teaching the N word. Teaching the N word. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, the fear of the grandmother in the back of the throat, right? Um, 
And uh, and I think when I think about it, I think when I first started thinking about it, it was sort of remembering things that my grandmother had said in the context of today and thinking, oh, my God, you know, just not just realizing that there was actually a, a history of, of uh, you know, enslavement in the, my family and, and wondering why I never quite put that together, knowing that I have this um, Southern agricultural family on one side. So there was that. But then, you know, I think actually what I think about much more these days is not that, but, but is the, the moment between um, my grandmother's generation and my parents' generation where it was as if suddenly um, we had become progressive and liberal and there was no question of racism. And obviously this, I'm talking about the 80s and 90s when we were, when I was growing up and that was the that was the message, you know, it was like your grandmother was racist and she was from the South and we live in New York and then Los Angeles. And of course we aren't, you know, and there was no work. And I, I guess I think what, what in the last um, 10 years, what I, what I've understood and I, I kind of can't believe that I didn't understand it earlier. And I blame myself because I, I went to, you know, I went to Harvard in the, um, late nineties when I could have taken all kinds of, of fantastic classes with the people who were teaching there. And I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't think those classes were for me. Um, yeah, I, I kind of can't believe that I didn't have the imagination to, to understand that I should have been reading African-American literature in school. Okay. I mean, I see that. I think, um, you know, I hear you, and and I know you, and I I know what you're wrestling with. I think on this end of things, though, that you know, um, your grandmother um, didn't hurt me. You know, uh, white supremacy hurts me every day, and it has hurt you know everybody that I love. Um, but I presume you know, that white people I know are just a couple of degrees away from something like that. You know, I mean, I wouldn't trust a white person who in this country who could, who could, who would try to most of, you know, any kind of lineage that was made them pure. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't trust that. I would think that right. why, why is that, you know, and it's sort of what, um, something I like that ta Coates was talked about in his book, you know, the politics of personal exoneration. You know, I mean, I presume, I mean, it's not, I'm not without my own um, things, you know? Uh, so, so I don't, I'm not interested in purity. And so the kind of the thing that bothers me and, you know, it's too early to talk to be, I think maybe critical of, of this, maybe of this movement, but that idea that there are some people who are pure and there's some people who are not, it, I, I'm not, I'm just simply not interested in that. I, I don't believe in it. And I don't right. see how that helps anything. That just sort of becomes about vanity. Um, I make mistakes on a daily basis. And, you know, there are, you know, I'm sh and there are the, you know, whatever, I mean, an ancestral, <laughs> you know, these ancestral things. Um, so I don't, I don't know what, who gains, you know, in that game about who's, who's pure. That's right. And, right. You know, and even I, when you think you don't want to participate in it as a white person, even when you recognize it and I, I see, I see it, you know, it's like I get into a, the school runs these workshops um, and I always sign up for them, you know, <laughs> and we get in the little breakout room to talk and you're supposed to, there was actually a, a, a white um, guy who was 
in, you know, it's a, it's a workshop that's run by black women who are the, you know, happen to be in positions of power at this school. But it was this guy, it was what this guy said, um, you know, about teaching with love that kind of stuck with me because we got into the breakout room and there's this British guy and he is, uh, well, I mean, I actually think we're not supposed to talk about things that happen in the breakout room outside the breakout room. <laughs> what happens on Zoom is on Zoom. But, um, you know, somebody says something that you, every fiber of you reacts against and you want to jump on them, right? And that is the most counterproductive thing you can do. I mean, the person stops listening, of course. Um, and it's, you know, it's similar to what happens when you're trying to talk to about sexism with somebody who doesn't get it. Um, and so, you know, that kind of teaching with love message, like, and especially as you try to teach children, um, you try to teach white children uh, is of course, you know, I, I guess I worry sometimes that, uh, the education that they're getting, what if they rebel against it in some way you know that scares me sometimes you know because mm-hmm. oh, well I guess what I mean is that they you know they're as they get older they're they challenge us you know more and more and I know that they are gonna see the work that we are trying to do that I'm trying to do for you know to the way I'm trying to educate myself I know it's going to seem old-fashioned and they're going to point out my mistakes and that's that's what's supposed to happen you know, but I don't want them to shy away from this conversation because they feel like um, their dad and I are shoving it down their throat because we're so worried about, um, you know, we're so eager for them to, to learn it. I guess I like I reread your uh, teaching the N word essay and that's about college students. And I was thinking, well, what about what about little kids? Right. Um, what about when when my eight year old says, what is the N word? You know, and I have to to try to explain to him what the difference is between that bad word and other bad words. Right. And, uh, and I, you know, I worry, I tried and I, I worry that maybe I didn't do it right. Yeah. You know, I have a, you know, I have a friend who's, you know, just a, a really, uh, she's a white woman, uh, a poet and a beautiful poet and a, a really, you know, clear and fierce feminist you know, who raised a daughter who, would taunt her by saying she was going to become a Victoria's Secret model, you know? And <laughs> yeah, I was like, yes, this is what I'm worried about. Like, exactly. Luckily, she no one in my family is going to be able to become a Victoria's Secret model, so I'm safe on that, on the ground. But, you know, of course, it made me laugh, you know, from this um, distance. But I saw, like, the daughter picked the perfect thing, you know, and the mom didn't see it coming. And, of course, she got over it, and she's not a Victoria's Secret model. But, of course um, not. Right. You know, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, my daughters, you know, my, one of my daughters will say, like, I want to become rich. And it's like, I, you know, I really, that is not a good goal. You know, <laughs> I mean, so, you know, that too, it's like, gosh, what would break my heart more, you know, actually, and as Julia said around the table the other night, like, what if I was a Trump supporter? That would be really difficult, wouldn't it? <laughs> Together, make dinner time conversations really unpleasant. Oh, you know, yeah. No, no, no. With that. When Trump was elected, I can't, so how, God, it seems like a hundred years ago, I guess it was three years ago, so the littler one would have been five, and he used to be like, I'm voting for Trump, I like Trump, you know, just, you know, just because, of yeah. course, <laughs> we were like, I, I was mean, like, so... I would look at my husband and be like, ignore, like, don't say anything. Yeah, exactly. because... yeah. 
yeah, it is their job to annoy and antagonize us. Um, exactly. but I think that, you know, I mean, look, I, I, I know your kid, I've never met your kids in real life, but you know, I feel I know them a little bit and there's, there's no, there's no way, you know, there's no way they're going to become, you know, yes. Um, and it's also not just what you say, but what you model as we, we both know, you know, I mean, my daughters would, you know, they would, I think they would, they love to claim that, you know, they will never, they hate reading, <laughs> you know, all these things, but you know, when I'm not looking, they they're are reading. Yeah. And I love their, when I'm not looking, I love their values. I love the values that they're developing. Um, yeah. That's and right. so that's and what, all yeah. of it is modeling, right? You cannot yes, say, you. you know, you cannot say we are not racist and have no, and never have a black person enter your house, which is sort of it's true. the situation I think of a lot of people in my generation growing up, yeah. right? But I also feel like a hypocrite if I say to my daughter, which I have said, you know, um, my friends, Emily and Allison, have enriched my life in a way that, you know, I can't even describe. And um, sometimes it takes work if you're living in the environment you're living in, in Park Slope, to you know, make this happen for yourself. But I, you know, I encourage you on your soccer team to uh, try to try to befriend everyone. And it's not, everyone's not going to be the right person to be your friend, but, um, you know, somebody will. But I, I do feel like a bit of a hypocrite because I'm, because of where we're raising her. You know, it's not, it's, it's um, her social world is pretty white. Yeah, of course. I mean, I'm dealing with the same thing here in Vermont, you know, and I watch, yeah. you know, my, look, my daughters right now are, I'm, I'm learning a lot. Just, I mean, they're, as they learn, I learn, you know, and as they become young people in the world with very clear ideas about who they are, I realize, um, I realize things about myself that are uncomfortable. Um, and so, you know, we're just all, we're just all trying to make it. And there's nothing about like being a parent to keep you humble you know, but that's also oh, just yeah. true. I think about being someone who's just being open to to learning and understanding that it it, it truly is a lifelong process, and it's frustrating. You know, and I, I I mean, and being in the classroom, I've learned from my students. You know, I remember when Me Too was dropping, and I was teaching a class on, on African American women writers, and my students were teaching me so much. And that sounds incredibly corny, but I really was. You know, I remember the moment thinking because they were they you know the, and the, the literature we were reading was perfectly dovetailing, you know, if you teach a class on, on women writers, you know, right. me too, you know? Um, and I remember the moment when I thought I went from applauding them for, as they kind of re would report on changes they were making in their lives and the ways they were standing up and defying expectations of, of their deepest, closest loved ones. And I remember thinking, Oh, I have to do that now too. <laughs> you know, I've actually put up with a lot of this stuff too, like the whisper network. I now, I, yes, I participated in this and, I, you know, and that was stunning realizing that, you know, yeah, guess who's not pure, you know, guess who's been complicit in these systems uh, that I hate. And so that process, you know, is, is a, it is, it's continuous um, and it's startling and, and I'm thrilled to be alive in this moment um, to witness and watch all of it. But, you know, it's just, we're just gonna have to keep, keep trying to remain vigilant and, and stay aware, but also to, I think take, I don't know about you, but I just need, I need those breaks sometime uh, I, sometimes I just need to, you know, prioritize mental health and just take a break um, and stay away from the news. And I, I need to just sort of get into the core, back into the core, um, into some core beliefs yeah. that 
you know, are bigger than any of us about what I think it means to be a human being. Yeah, that's right. And I think the way that we do that, at least for you and me, is, is getting back into the, um, you know, into those routines of writing that are sometimes easier and sometimes harder to maintain. I was thinking about, I have a student that I was supposed to talk to this afternoon and she sent me, you know, her essays in the middle of the night and said, you know, I've been having writer's block since the pandemic started and this is all I did and I'm sorry, but you know, I'm just sending you what I have. And I thought, you know, my heart sort of went out to this 15-year-old and um, and I want to tell her sort of in a gentle way that I, the way that a teacher once told me that I don't believe in writer's block. Um, but also that, you know, so many grown-up writers are not writing right now and she needs to cut herself a break. And um, gosh, I think it's really hard for teenagers. I think, it's, I think this must be the hardest um, age to be kind of shut in the house all of a sudden with your family. Yeah. Yeah. The little kids kind of retreat into their younger selves exactly. and they're okay. But... Yeah. yeah. It's, it's these strange times, you know, and uh, yeah. I hope to be alive yeah. at the other end of it to have a chance to kind of sort it out and figure out what this, what this moment meant, but we will be doing well, you and well, I do there. too. I do too, Emily. I hope that we'll, <laughs> we'll be talking to people. <laughs> each other about this at the end and we'll we'll both still be alive i think that that's something to, to work for for goal. sure and maybe on that um, on that note yes yes exactly <laughs> thank you so much this was really fun this is great it's always a pleasure to talk with you um and thank you amanda for putting us together always thank you amanda for bookable Thank you, Emily, and thank you, Nell, for this incredible conversation. Nell Freudenberger's most recent book is Lost and Wanted. It's published by Vintage Contemporaries, and the paperback is out now. Emily Bernard is the author of Black is the Body, stories from my grandmother's time, my mother's time, and mine, which is also published by Vintage, and the paperback is also available now. Bookable is a production of Loud Tree Media. I'm your host, Amanda Stern, five feet tall and growing in every friendship. We're produced by me, Bo Friedlander, and Andrew Dunn, who also mixes and sound designs the show. Bo is Loudtree's editor-in-chief. Find us on the web at bookablepod.com and subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this show. That's one of the best ways for other listeners to find Bookable. We're back next week with an extra special episode, and we will see you then. This is Bookable.